Everybody, my name is James D. Fiore, and this is Black Bolt. Sometimes you find yourself, you catch yourself making a mistake when a reflex kicks in, and you realize that that reflex is just probably because you're a product of your environment when it comes to things like social media and the news and things like that. That happened to me the other day when I learned about this news um this particular headline that i have says it's a timeline of the investigations into tyree nichols death after a traffic stop and arrest by memphis police now if you've seen the video it shows several police officers i think it's four or five i don't i was going to show the video i don't want to so i'm not going to but it was basically police beating the crap out of a black suspect now where did i go wrong The police officers involved in the assault and the death of this person were black police officers. And my mind, because, and I'm I'm so happy that I had this conversation with a member of the police service in Regina today, actually, because I immediately went, what is a Regina police chief doing commenting about a story in the States about something like this? And then the cynic in me was like, maybe it's because the officers are black and now they finally feel like they can say... I was dead wrong. I looked up this man and found a statement that was similar of his when George Floyd was murdered. And I called the Regina police today. I told the woman who answered the phone that was in the media division, I believe, exactly what I just told you. And she was wonderful. And we were able to coordinate our guest tonight. His name is Police Chief Evan Bray. Sir, how are you today? Very good, James. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming. Um, if you heard the intro, you'll you'll see, um, and I and I sort of mentioned this a bit before we went on air. I didn't tell you my mistake, but I I told you I made one. Um, I'm fine with that mistake. I'm sort of, I'm sort of glad I made it because what it did it reminded me of things that I often advise other people to to do, which is take people at their word and don't jump the gun on things. Here I was ready to believe that a, a like a white police chief who I knew nothing about is only commenting on a case because it involved black officers. And I feel like ashamed for it, but I'm sort of glad, like I said, that I did. Because I have you on now. I've, I've told you that. And now I'm going to ask you, what is it? Because you made this statement about George Floyd in that incident as well. What is it about the, the uh, I guess, inclination that you have to put out a statement regarding things that happened uh, because of police in a different country. I'm just sort of curious what your motivation is. Well, so it's a little bit of a journey that that got us there. Uh, James is, you know, if we go back to George Floyd and that tragic senseless murder that happened in 2020, um, that caused a, an outcry across the world that I think not only was justified, but caused a lot of things to happen uh, way after that. And one of them is in Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada, 
we have done a lot of work to try and, and reach out and build relationships with different community groups, but predominantly in Regina with the Indigenous community, because the Indigenous community in Regina makes up the majority of what I would call the, the largest visible minority in, in our community. And when George Floyd happened, the Black community approached the Regina Police Service and many others and said, hey, this affects us, this affects our segment in the community. And, you know, we, we feel like we don't have a very good relationship with many different organizations, including the Regina Police Service. And so we did a lot of things starting mid 2020 and since then to build relationships, meaningful relationships where they've been involved in policy decisions at our police service. We've had them sitting on our board of police commissioners, which is, you know, the most immediate level of oversight to our police service. We've included them in our strat planning exercises. And so there's been what I would consider to be a very meaningful relationship. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when I heard what happened in Memphis, and although I hadn't seen the video, I see their chief of police talking about the need to dismiss these officers. I'm hearing rumblings that these officers are likely going to be charged with murder. Um, and, and we're hearing more and more about this. I felt like this important part of my community who I've been working for a year and a half to two years to building a meaningful relationship with are going to be heartbroken all over again, are going to be full of anger and frustration and distrust of the profession of policing all over again. And so in my mind, even though it was in Memphis, thousands of miles away from us, I needed to do a couple of things. I needed to, first of all, reach out to some of these leaders that I've been working with. Uh, and I did that last week on Wednesday night and just said to them, I am, I am so sorry for what I'm seeing unfolding in the United States. As you know, you have been part of a reform journey for us in Canada. And Canadian policing is somewhat different than that in the United States. But uh, at, the, at the end of the day, I mean, policing is policing. And I think we have to accept that we're often all painted with the same brush. And so I had this meaningful dialogue with them. But I also wanted to have something with the rest of the community that said, I'm, I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I'm pissed off that this has happened again. It doesn't matter if it's Minneapolis, Memphis, or where it's happening, it should not be happening. And as a police officer, I, I couldn't not say that about it. We had some conversation at the police service whether or not I should be saying that in advance of the video being released, because I hadn't seen the video. And oh, wow. so there were a few people that were critical of me coming out early, condemning those officers, yet I felt like you know, we, we couldn't wait. We, we knew enough information. These officers had been fired. Their chief had condemned what they had done. In my mind, I had heard enough to be convicted in my, in my stance, not only to my community, but to anybody that would see it on social media. So that's why the message went out really in, a, in an attempt to try and, and focus on those relationships that we had built in our city. The contrast of seeing you make that statement, um, when placed against the contrast of silence that you often hear from police forces when officers get into trouble, even when there is video evidence, I thought was, was uh, refreshing and a little shocking in a way too. I'm curious, have you ever received, whether for the Floyd statement or for this statement, 
any blowback from police services in the States that are like, Hey, what are you doing? Like, is there anybody that's sort of come yeah. at you a little bit like that? Yeah. So I have contacts that are in the United States and, and so, you know, they, again, there's some significant differences between policing in the States and policing in Canada. And a lot has to do with oversight. So in Canada, if we use force in making an arrest, it's mandatory that it's reported. It's reviewed by both internal and external independent bodies. Whereas in the United States, you can use force and there's no obligation in many states to even report that you had to. That in and of itself is, is significant. But, you know, I did hear back in 2020 in the George Floyd thing where people said, you know, why don't you why don't you wait and let justice carry through like every every uh, process has due course. So why not wait for that before you 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 step in front of a media or a camera and say something like that. And I think, you know, what we have to recognize is, of course, there's due process. We know there's court processes just because these officers are charged. They're going to go through a court process. But I don't think there's anything wrong, whether you're a police officer or a citizen who's not involved with the police to say that's wrong. Yeah. That that pissed me off. That frustrates me. That angers me. I'm embarrassed. I'm frustrated. I'm sad. It's tragic. Those are words that I think we can say and feel comfortable saying. And so that's why I did in 2020. That's why I did again, sadly, in 22. And I, I hope that I never have to again. You, you mentioned um, the difference between the United States and Canada in training. I happen to just know, because I used to live in Toronto and I'm part of the media, uh, that uh, after 9-11, Toronto imported certain training that was new from the New York Police Department. They were even trained by a couple of, I don't know if they were lieutenants or whatever, but uh, who came up and, and sort of helped Toronto almost militarize. I, I, I often felt it was a little bit too much. How much does police training explain these situations that can occur, whether it's in the United States or, or Canada, but since you did distinguish a difference, so if we could just focus on the United States first and then Canada, because I often found that uh, police training, I had a friend who was in the police force and he told me about, um, I don't know if it's the 13 foot rule or whatever it is, where yeah. if a man has a knife and he's within 13 feet to protect yourself, you may shoot him. And I'm just like, okay, I don't know how many people are really good at throwing knives or whatever, yeah. but ignorant guys like me are always asking, well, okay, fine. If you have to shoot him, then okay, but can you shoot him in the leg? <laughs> and they're yeah. like, no, you can't. So how much does training, does training need to be revamped in the States and Canada? Well, I think we're seeing training involved in policing in Canada is being significantly revamped. And that's to ensure that de-escalation is the primary focus. And at any given time, it doesn't matter how serious the incident is, de-escalation has to be the objective. Sadly, um, it's not always the objective. And so I think there's actually two things, James, that I would say. One is we need to ensure that that is the pillar of all training that police do. It doesn't matter what where you are on the use of force spectrum. If you're at the, the place where you're, you're just having some sort of a dialogue with the person to the place where you've drawn your weapon, and you don't want to have to use it, but you are you are in the in the mindset that it might be what you're using to resolve that situation. Getting back to de-escalating that situation, I think, has to be first and foremost the thing that you do. But the other thing is, I think that often, and I I don't profess to be an expert on the Scorpion Squad, and that was the squad in Memphis that was involved in this arrest, but. 
anytime that you have a group of police officers that you put in a high crime area and you attach to them uh, expectations, uh, some numbers, some data-driven results, we want you to make this many arrests, we want you to, you know, all of those things, you take away what I would call that important piece of discretion by police officers, and they're focused on on exactly what they're doing. And so, you know, even the, the name of that group of officers yeah. is not something that, you know, certainly we would ever use in, in, well, in Regina, and I don't think in Canada you would get that. It just sounds aggressive by its nature. And, uh, and you know, I mean, clearly the, the results speak for themselves. So I think de-escalation and training is a big part of it. And the mandate that you put on officers when you're deploying them out there, the expectation you put on them has a lot to do with it as well. I, I should have opened with this, but I'm going to play the clip um, that uh, uh, the statement that you made uh, regarding the um, the Tyree Nichols situation, and then I'll, I'll hit you up when I come back. Hi there, Evan Bray, Chief of Police for the Regina Police Service. Just wanting to reach out and talk to you a bit as things unfold south of the border in Memphis. Many of you may have heard or will be hearing over the next little while of the unnecessary death of Mr. Tyree Nichols. Tyree died as a result of injuries that he sustained at the hands of five Memphis Police Department members. Those members, while in the execution of their duties, clearly did not follow the oath they took to serve and protect and rather brutally beat Mr. Nichols to the point that he was hospitalized and five days later lost his life. This senseless, tragic and unnecessary murder has caused outrage as it should through the United States and through the world. Those Memphis Police Department officers were dismissed from their jobs last week and just today charged with second-degree murder. But we know that this doesn't solve the heartache, the anger, the frustration and the cries for justice that will continue and rightfully so. I reached out last night to a few leaders in our city that are members of the black community to express my sympathy for what they were going to watch unfold because every time that happens, no different than when it was George Floyd, Rodney King, or senseless other examples, it brings up all kinds of heartache and trauma. Our police service, while sickened by what is unfolding, is even more steadfast in our determination to work with community, to build meaningful relationships, and as importantly, commit to transparency, accountability, and oversight. Because we know that with good relationships and with a commitment that shows the community they can trust our police service, it allows us to do the job that we continue to be trusted with in our community and provide that valuable service in keeping all citizens of our city safe. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. 
and thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. What I what I especially like about your statement, and I mentioned this to um, to Elizabeth, who I guess is your like gatekeeper. Um, she's our manager of media relations. Okay, yeah. I was going to say whoever screens your calls, but yeah, she's uh, and she was a lovely woman, but um. The the thing that struck me the most uh, about your statement is how often I hear it, which is hardly ever um, from a person in your position. And the fact that it didn't sound like it was drenched in any type of media training or PR prep. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Are, 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 are people in positions like yours, public servants, police, politicians, maybe... Do you think maybe um, we'll, we'll get to a point where they start to realize that all of the PR that we see, we now notice it more than we notice the statements sometimes? Yeah. And, you know. Yeah, so I think that's a really good comment, James. And, and you know, so there was some, some very intentional things about that video. One is I didn't script it. So, you know, I wanted, I said, if I stumble, I stumble. I'm not, this is a, this is no different than the conversation you and I are having right now. If I say, um, I say, um, but I'm not, I'm not wanting it to sound rehearsed and scripted. But the other thing is language matters. And so as you heard in that statement, I used the word murder because that's what it was, right? He was murdered. Those officers were charged with murder. And so it's important to say that word, because that's a recognition of, of what happened. And so they're definitely, you know, I agree with you. I think sometimes, and and I'm sure I'm, I'm guilty of it. I'm not going to say I'm, I'm an expert at it, but I think sometimes we fall into that trap of being too political and trying to walk a, a, that tightrope rather than just being a human being and saying, I mean, I didn't say the word shitty, but I've used it on your podcast a couple of times. That was a shitty, unnecessary, tragic, devastating, um, you know, despicable situation that unfolded. And, uh, you know, it, we, I think we have to be able to, to talk like that and, and use those words because that's the words that are used around water coolers, at kitchen tables, um, and people are sitting gap you know gasping at the tv at what they're watching as those videos are being played those are the words that are being used and so you know if we truly are building trust with our community and our community we want our community to trust us we can't look robotic and rehearsed we have to be human beings is is there something to be said for either the existing culture or at least the strong perception of the culture known as the blue wall of silence do we need to, um, I, I literally know nothing about police culture. I, I know that the perception seems to be that if two partners are out patrolling and one person does something that's technically against the law, then they have each other's backs. And that's sort of what people kind of believe. Even if that's not true, but the public kind of believes that, is there something to be said to sort of a create a campaign of like, the culture here actually is we don't commit crimes in front of our partners because we understand that reporting crime is reporting crime and it doesn't matter if it's our brother. Am I being too idealistic or or is that something that that we can yeah, do? Yeah, that, that should happen. And we talked about that. In fact, I can tell you examples from my career where that has happened. And that that's part of my point. Um, you know, I know that we, we do all kinds of training to ensure that officers act within the law, act according to the law, don't use excessive force and all of those things. But let me tell you this, James, 
if there's five cops on scene and one cop stops, starts stepping offside in terms of using too much force, we better see one of those other cops step in and stop it. And I expect that in my police service. And I would expect that in police services everywhere. And so that, to me, is the troubling part. I mean, I'm not making excuses for officers, but if if an officer starts doing something wrong, part of de-escalation training that we train all of our officers in isn't just for the person from the public that we're working with. It's got a lot to do with other officers on scene. We're the trained professionals. We're the ones that should be able to control the situation. There's five of them, one of him, absolutely no need. Get the situation under control. But as soon as someone starts stepping offside, someone needs to step in and stop that behavior immediately. It's funny when you're when you're when you were just talking right now, the the um, the story that came to my mind, because I'm from Toronto, is the Sammy Yatim story. The, the young man who was on the streetcar by himself and still somehow shot. And um, it, it, a lot of us, I guess, feel that um, the way the training works and, and to a certain extent, I understand it. But when I start to unpack it, it doesn't make sense. anymore. But where you would rather err on the side of um, like if the choice is between a cop being injured and, and a suspect dying, the cop hardly ever gets injured, it seems. Yeah, well, you're right. That is part of the training, right, is is ensuring that that the public is protected and that the officers are are safe, but using the minimal amount of force necessary. And so I, I'll I'll tell you right now, James, I'm not an expert on the on the uh, Yatim case from Toronto. I, I mean, I remember it as it unfolded, but I, I don't profess to know all the details. But at the end of the day, if you have the benefit of time and distance, right? If you have the benefit of time and distance, and so it maybe is going to take you five hours to talk to a person and de-escalate and talk that situation down. But if you can resolve it that way, rather than escalating to using force right now, then that's the situation that we should always implore. And I, you know, I mean, again, I'm not professing to be, not only am I not an expert, I'm not perfect. And I, through my career, I'm sure have made made challenging and, and wrong decisions. But I spent a lot of time on our hostage negotiation team. And as a, as a hostage negotiator, that's the number one thing that you're doing, right? Is building a relationship with the person, even though it might be over the phone or over a loud hailer, if you're not in a situation where you can talk on the phone, you're building a relationship to you know get some mutual understanding between you and the person that ultimately you're trying to arrest. Make no mistake about it, you know, when you're talking to that person on the phone, I think back to my negotiating days, they need to understand that the end of this results in them being in handcuffs, but it can result in them peacefully being in handcuffs as opposed to using force. And that's got a lot to do with just how you de-escalate the situation. So, you know, I think we we more and more need to to get out of the mindset that we need to resolve this situation quickly. If we have the benefit of not needing to react right away and use force right away, often time can be the deciding factor and the factor that allows us to de-escalate to the situation to the point that oftentimes the person will walk out willingly, put their hands behind their back in order to be handcuffed. It doesn't mean that they didn't do something wrong and they need to be arrested, but the manner in which they're arrested and how that process goes down um, can absolutely be controlled and should be controlled by the police. 
Um, I have a, I have a, a, about two more questions, but I just thought of this. You and I are the same. We don't write anything down. You're, you're like the Jay Z of police chiefs, right? Like you don't oh. write shit down, right? Never no, heard no. those two words in the same sense. <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> right. Um, but I'm curious about um, the the hostage negotiator. That's just that's new for me. Have, and I'm just because you seem you, you seem like a real authentic kind of guy. And you also seem, you know, like you want to get a job done that um, needs to be done so that the most people can be satisfied with the work that your police force does. If you've ever saved anyone's life during a hostage negotiation or like a potential jumper or anything like that, did you ever talk to them afterwards? That is that is such a poignant question, because I'll tell you right now. Negotiation school 101 says, number one, never lie. So when you're talking to the person, never lie. Never say, James, if you come out, you're not going to get arrested. If you know they're going to be arrested, say, James, look, you you are going to be arrested, but I want to make sure we do it in a way that is safe for you. You know, and you're talking about, you've, you've built a rapport, you're understanding them. And many times they will say, am I going to see you? Really? And and I will say I'm I'm actually not on scene right now. We have officers on scene, but I will come and see you in cells or in detention, or I can come and you know I'll meet you when the officers have you under arrest. I will come, and so every time that they ask that, and even a few times where they didn't, our negotiators will do that, and I and I had the the good fortune to do that because again, you all you've done is you've extended a hand to build a relationship with a person that you want them to know was a real relationship. So everything I've said to him, number one or her is not a lie. And number two, I'm hoping that we don't find ourselves in this situation again. So your, your question I think is right on point. Absolutely. That is very, very common for us to go and sit down and have a face to face. Often if the person wants to have a cigarette, I don't smoke cigarettes, but I'll sit there and and they'll have a cigarette and we'll have a conversation and it's a way for them to kind of process and put it all together. And, and ultimately, you know, if you're talking about restorative justice and things that we can do to, to make meaningful changes so that we don't have this recidivism problem, little things like that can make a big difference. Yeah. I I mean, I, 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 thank you. I, 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 um, it was a question that just popped into my head, but the, the, uh, the thing that I was thinking about was how important it is to, uh, appear sincere and maybe the best way to appear sincere is to actually be sincere right. you know you don't you don't want that person to die right you don't want that person to take other people with you uh with them and uh and so even after the fact you know how like important it probably is to these people that are struggling in life maybe they're in, during their first court appearance or something from that incident and you're there being like you got this that yeah. must make a world of difference to these people sometimes yeah i i think so and i mean you think about if you're again if we're talking about crisis negotiations 101, they're having what could be the worst day of their life, right? Mm -hmm. They're at the point where they feel like they've got nothing to lose. And yet the fact that they're in this negotiation usually will tell you that they want help. They just maybe didn't know how to ask for it. They didn't whatever. And so, you know, a lot of it is finding ways that you can relate and, and we're all human beings. And so, Finding a way to relate to someone, it doesn't take very long. And again, I've done this multiple times in my career. When you start talking to them and you find out they've got an in-law that they can't stand or they've got an alcohol problem or whatever, most of us have an in-law that drives us crazy or 
has know someone who struggled with alcohol or perhaps have struggled with alcohol or addictions yourself. And so the ability to kind of build that rapport and relationship, it has to be done in a sincere way. It can't be fake. But when you do, I mean, that's human, that's human behavior 101, right? We all want to feel a connection with someone, someone who we don't really know. It doesn't mean that we can't, you and I might in 28 minutes, I've never met you before tonight, and yet in 28 minutes, we've been able to build a bit of a relationship that I think is a foundation that we would be able to rely on if we met again and had to talk again in the future. I would agree. And um, uh, this question just popped into my head, too, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious. I don't know what the state of the Regina Police Force was like before you got there or anything like that, but are you a reformer? Is that what you would call <laughs> Yeah, I, I, you know what? I think policing is in a constant state of reform. Our chief was great. The chief before me, I thought, was a great uh, person and and did great things. And so, but you know, every leader brings their personality to the job. But policing, in and of itself, is in a constant state of reform. Oversight, budgeting, service delivery, all of those things. And and policing is not unique to that. I mean, if you think. When my great, when my grandmother was having a baby, my dad, uh, the doctor would come to the house. Now doctors don't make house calls unless it's an emergency. You're going to the doctor. So service delivery changes over time and policing has been no different. And so, you know, I feel like if you truly are a leader that wants to build a relationship with the community while respecting the incredible staff that you have that are doing this job every day in the community, you're you're trying to pull those two worlds together. So you want to respect the officers and the civilian staff that work in your organization, but you also want the community to trust you as a police service, to trust you as an organization. Because if the if the police service doesn't have the trust of the community that they're serving, they, they have absolutely nothing. So finding a way to bring those two worlds together, that's my job. That's my job as chief. That's my executive job. And ultimately, if my officers and my frontline staff can feel that, and if my community can feel that they trust, support, and we're transparent in the work we do, then we've achieved that. And I mean, nowhere is perfect. Regina is not perfect. And we've got our our battles and there's parts of our community that are a little less trusting than others. But ultimately, I think that's the goal we always have to strive for. You know, even though um, I think you, you, you probably make a, a dope-ass police chief, there's a part of me that wants you to be a politician, and then I just kicked myself and said, no, fuck it, make him a police chief. Thanks, James. Don't make me a politician. That's, that's not on my bucket list. Oh, before we go, this will be the last thing. I, I and, and, and thank you, by the way, for your time. It was totally last minute, and I really appreciate it. I want to put a name in your ear, okay, because I've been covering this group for a long time called the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. Okay. I'm not sure if you're aware of them or not. Um, there's a little town in your uh, province called Maple Creek, Saskatchewan. Yeah. And, um, and uh, I, I'm not going to bore you with all the details. Look it up. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe Google my name and then I'll, I'll email you what to Google. Sure. And I would love to have you back to talk to me about how cults operate in the open and, and if there's anything that can be done about that. I'm, I know that I'm just sandbagging with you that right now. And uh, we, we didn't plan on talking about it, but I would love to. Um, and also before you go, I would like to apologize and also say thank you. Apology is for uh, me. And I was the only one that knew I jumped the gun. I just confessed it to Elizabeth. But um, <laughs> you know what I mean? But I did. I, I, I thought it was a good opener because um, we all kind of do that from time to time. And, uh, and I feel so silly. 
But if it wasn't for that mistake, I wouldn't have been able to have you on and have you talk to my audience about things that I think they might be surprised to hear police chiefs say. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time, sir. Awesome. Well, thanks, James. It's been nice getting to know you, and I hope we uh, we can talk again in the near future. I do as well. Chief Evan Bray of the Regina Police Force. Thank you very much, sir. Awesome. Thank you. Have a good one. Okay, not to toot my own horn here, but I really love that interview. You want to know why? Because it's not tooting my horn, because he was dope. Um, interesting to hear a police chief uh, call other police officers murders, murderers, um, before those officers uh, go to court for the crimes that they allegedly committed. Um, some might say that it is uh, maybe a little bit reckless. I welcome it. Um, we all saw George Floyd get murdered by that man who kept his knee on his neck for whatever it was, 11 minutes or whatever it was. And um, guys, I don't know. I've never heard a police chief speak like that. You always hear police chiefs be very careful it's like the union rep got into them and then now they're just like, you know, finger puppet kind of thing. Or you um, or they'll come out and just completely defend the police officers or they'll flim flam or whatever. And this guy um, says it like it is. And uh, and like I said, I originally thought a white police chief was only commenting on uh, a story that involved black police officers because the police officers were black. And I love that I was completely, totally wrong about that. Um, I'm so happy that I didn't write an article without doing my due diligence. That would have been embarrassing. Um, but as you can see, though, um, and this is one of my favorite mantras, is finding the silver lining in bad situations, even when they're your own fuck-ups. And uh, it was instant in this case. I was like, is that what happened? I looked it up, realized it wasn't, called the police uh, station in Regina, told the lady from the media department <laughs> exactly what I just did. Her and I talked for 15 minutes, and uh, next thing you know, I got the police chief on the show. Um, that was that was great. I really enjoyed that. I hope you guys did too. In about 27 minutes, the unannounced second half of the Black Ball Doubleheader will be coming on as I sit down once again with David Wallace. And David and I are going to go through all of the big stories and all of the big media that he is directly responsible for over the last calendar year. We're also going to beg you guys for some money. Um, here's, the, here's the straight goods of this. Normally, I wouldn't do this. Um, you know, but, but last year wasn't a normal year. Last year was the first year where I started to like make personal connections with the subjects that I was writing about. Richard Marsh, Cheryl Hope, uh, David Wallace. I consider all these people to be my friends, not just people that I know or or um, subjects on a podcast or anything like that. Um, these are my friends. And that's just three of them. There's a whole bunch of them. Um, David Wallace it, lost everything when he blew the whistle. Yes, he blew the whistle on some of the shady things that he did himself, but nonetheless, he still blew the whistle. And ever since then, he hasn't had two coins to rub together. Despite the fact that he is, like I said, directly responsible for massive stories that came out last year. Um, covered by people like the CBC and Global and CTV, and also Canada Land and Jesse Brown, who took the information that David Wallace gave them, made a six-episode, four-episode, I don't remember how many, a multi-episode pod series out of the information that David gave them. It became the most downloaded pod series in Canada last year, I believe. It's like top three at least. I believe it's number one. 
Um, I don't even know how to fact check that, but if someone knows how, please do so. It doesn't really matter. He did really well with it. He made money from it. He got some clout with it. He even tried to convince David Wallace to um, go in with him on a movie deal about David's life. And to David's credit, he was like, nah, I don't think so. When David was sued by the same people that are suing Canada Land, Jesse Brown didn't immediately call David and was like, yeah, obviously you're, you're going to be uh, under my lawyer because, you know, we're getting sued for information that we co-sign and you gave it to us. So why would we throw you under the bus? No. David can't afford a lawyer because he has no job anymore because he blew the whistle on his job that played him, paid him quite lucratively. Jesse Brown um, takes David's story, fashions a profitable pod series out of it. Then when he gets sued for the information that comes out of that podcast, he publicly states that he backs up everything that he put in that podcast, but won't back up the guy that gave him all the information, even though he's being sued as well. And he can't afford a lawyer anymore. I find that despicable. So we're going to talk about that tonight in about 24 minutes. And we'll see you then on Blackboard. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. everywhere the imagination dares it's for the open-minded the pleasure seeker it's jeff woods with the new podcast about relationships and sexuality theme-based with special guests the blue hotel hotline at every episode climaxes with an adult bedtime story get a room and listen in at the blue hotel Begins Friday, September 23rd.